This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Hear the Word of God. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to the people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? You mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to your word, your truth, which is more precious to us than life itself, because it is your word because it speaks to us of your grace to us and of our Savior Jesus, and because, Father, it not only points the way to life in this world, but life in the world to come. And, Father, it is manna to our souls, and we pray as we study it this morning that you would feed our souls and that you would teach our minds, that you would transform our lives by your word, by your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite movies, one of my favorite musicals, is Singing in the Rain. You may recall that film is about the travails of the movie industry of Hollywood as it made the transition back in the 20s from silent movies to movies with sound, movies in which the people actually talked uh, or even sang. Well, the text that is before us this morning reminds me of a scene in Singing in the Rain. 
The dashing and romantic Don Lockwood, played by Gene Kelly, is making a personal appearance at a test screening of his newest film, The Dueling Cavalier. Of course, the crowds gather there in front of the theater early to, uh, to see him, to welcome him. And as more and more people gather, the anticipation built, the cheering, the noise grew, and finally a car pulls into view, stops at the end of the red carpet, and the, the cheering of the crowd reaches a crescendo, and the door opens, and out steps Cosmo Brown, Don's best friend. Well, Cosmo's face lights up, jubilant with this grand greeting he's received, but it just as quickly turns to a frown as the crowd's cheering falls in disappointment. Ah, oh, it grows quiet. This is it. Kind of the reaction of the crowd. Well, that's kind of the reaction that we have to the passage before us. The passage we studied last week was so full of promise, so full of anticipation. Here's Israel in slavery in Egypt, and yet we read of this specific boy who was born, whose life is preserved in so amazing a way, and not just preserved, but he is elevated to be adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, to be raised in Pharaoh's court. Anticipation runs high as we move from the text last week, the first uh, ten verses of this chapter, to what we have here before us now. Other babies were dying, this baby's preserved, this baby rises to high Places. It's a little bit like um, the anticipation you might have as a top pick out of high school signs with your college football team, uh, goes to school there, plays there, and yet underachieves. You sort of think all the buildup and this is it? Well, that's, again, kind of the feeling that we have in this passage. The, the title of this sermon is Moses the Deliverer. But you have to realize, at least for this passage, that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. That's a little bit of an ironic sermon title, as we see from the kinds of deliverances that Moses brings. There are three of them specifically in verses 11 through 22 that we want to look at. Moses in action, Moses the deliverer. The first one has to do, as is well known, with Moses delivering a Hebrew from an Egyptian. And we see this beginning in verse 11. One day, or in those days, when Moses had grown up, Stephen, passage we read earlier, tells us at this point Moses was 40 years old. This is 40 years, as you go from 10 to 11, 40 years have passed. So that's 40 more years of slavery for the Hebrews, 40 years for Moses of growing up in Pharaoh's household, living the good life, the wealth, the education, all of those kinds of things. And we read one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Hebrew culture and Hebrew, therefore Hebrew language, was very male-oriented, very patriarchal. And I don't know why translations refuse to translate the actual word that's there, even the ESV. He went out to his brothers that's the word that's used there, specifically the word for brothers. He went out to his brothers, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. That's the actual word 
that's used there. And a people, yes, it is one of his people. And it's interesting to note that even after 40 years, most of that in Pharaoh's household, he identifies still with the Hebrews as his people, but as it says specifically here, as his brothers. You see here that Moses still sees these suffering Israelites, these suffering Hebrews as his people. He looks on their burdens, and he obviously feels for them. Why is that significant? I think it's significant, if you, especially if you come back tonight and see from Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, where it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, not just his people. Brothers. Is there a connection? Well, you lose it if you don't translate it brothers here. And I'm not faulting the ESV people as, I guess, an acceptable translation, but the word he actually uses is brothers. Just as Moses had sympathy toward his brothers, Jesus has sympathy toward us and is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And that is the word used in Hebrews too. But anyway, Moses goes out. He's 40 years old. He's looking over his people. He sees their burdens. And he specifically sees... An Egyptian, taskmaster, we don't know, but an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, beating up on one of his brothers. And so, verse 12, Moses looks this way and that, and seeing no one, he strikes down the Egyptian. Kills him in defense of his Hebrew brother. Now, people take different stands on what Moses has done here. Some say Moses actually murdered, committed murder here, became a murderer. It just says that, that on the one hand, the Egyptian was beating, was striking the Hebrew, but Moses murdered the Egyptian. He killed him. Others, and, and he looked this way and that to see if anybody was looking before he acted. Others put a more positive spin, if we want to use that word on this, and say, well, Moses was doing what anyone would do to protect someone who was being attacked. You know, here's this, here's this Egyptian beating up his Hebrew brother. You know, what would anyone do? Jumps to his defense. But first he looked this way and that to see if there was anybody to help. There's actually that idiom, that expression occurs in another place in Scripture that does seem to indicate looking for help. However, I do think Moses was looking to make sure no one saw what he was about to do before he killed the Egyptian, because then he hides his body in the sand. It does seem there's an element of wanting to conceal the action he's taken, not just seeing himself as acting justly, necessarily. But he did act to protect this, this Hebrew. He, he is acting. He's showing his instinct to identify with the downtrodden, to protect the oppressed, and certainly to protect his own people. So we see that connection Moses has with them, that feeling for them. But he acts, maybe just impulsively, and kills this Egyptian. And Stephen told us in the passage we read from Acts that Moses did this thinking that the Israelites would see that he was acting to deliver them. But they didn't see that. They didn't understand that. Act of deliverance number two, uh, verses 13 through 15. Verse 13, he goes out the next day. Behold, two, not an Egyptian and a Hebrew, but this time two Hebrews were struggling together, fighting with each other. And Moses is offended by that. He, he, you almost get the sense he's hurt by that. You know, th these are two Hebrews. 
And he says to the man in the wrong, a word indicates the offender, whoever had maybe started it or done something to provoke this, this fight, why do you strike your companion? What are you doing? You know, you two, you two should be allies against the Egyptians. And here you are fighting each other. What are you doing? Well, what's the man's reaction? He doesn't say, you know, gee, Moses, you, you know, you're right. Well, what are we doing here? We ought to be fighting the Egyptians. We ought to pull together and see we No. In fact, what happens here is, is sort of a foretaste of what's to come for Moses in his dealings with the Israelites well after he'd brought them out of Egypt. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Hmm. Interesting. Who made you a prince? Well, Pharaoh's daughter, if you wanted to actually answer the question. But he wasn't asking for information. You know, this is sort of a, who made you boss? You know, who put you over us? Maybe if they knew of Moses and, and, and word of his background, we don't know, some resentment toward Moses. Oh, yeah, fine, Moses, here you are living in Pharaoh's palace, you know. Who are you to come out here and talk to us poor little old Hebrews? We don't know. At any rate, there's a rejection of what's going on here. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? And then he asks a question that uh, puts a cold chill down Moses' spine. Do you mean to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Ooh. What Moses thought was done in secret wasn't so secret after all. What, what Moses, when Moses had looked around, maybe no one was watching, but maybe the Hebrew he had delivered had gone and told what Moses did, and Moses realized word was out, and he could be in a lot of trouble. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. But again, here's Moses, he's acting toward the Israelites, two Israelites this time, and he's met with rejection. He's rebuffed. Who are you? Are you going to kill me too? Pharaoh found out what he had done to the Egyptian, which raises a question. Someone had asked last week, you know, what did, did Pharaoh know about Moses? Or was Moses just one more grandchild, grandchild lost in a mass of grandchildren? Did, did Pharaoh know that he had this little Hebrew boy growing up in his own household? We don't know. Uh, at any rate, and what did, Moses, what did Pharaoh know about Moses now? Well, uh, we don't know, except that when Pharaoh realized what Moses had done, he wanted to kill Moses. He sought to kill Moses. He sent out soldiers, we don't know, to, to take care of Moses. And Moses ran. Moses fled from Pharaoh, stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, we read the passage earlier from Genesis. Uh, the well, uh, but even before that, you'll know that Abraham sent his servant out to find a wife for Isaac, and they meet, he meets Rebekah at a well. And then here, uh, Rachel you know, is there uh, at, at, at the well. And you even think later on in the New Testament, Jesus in John chapter 4 sits down with the woman at the well. You ever want to do an interesting study in Scripture? You ever getting a Master of Arts degree in theology or so, or biblical studies, maybe your, your thesis could be the, the place of wells in W-E-L-L-S in, in, in Scripture. Um, 
Because a lot of things, interesting things in Scripture, a lot of turning points happen at wells. That sort of makes sense because the wells were necessary for survival. It was water. And precisely because of that, wells were often a meeting place for people. Uh, but here Moses goes, and again, another well. He sits down by a well. Now Midian, if you took off from Egypt and went more or less due east, you would, uh, of course, there's the Red Sea. More about that later. Uh, and then there's the Sinai Peninsula, and kind of to the eastern side of that, and then the, um, farther into Arabia is Midian, the area of Midian. And that's where Moses flees. He goes sort of east, maybe a little east, northeast, and heads off into Midian. He sits down by a well. And so we come to the third act of deliverance on Moses' part. First of all, delivering the Egyptian, or the Hebrew from the Egyptian, then delivering, trying to break up this fight, Hebrew against Hebrew. And then again, here. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. Now apparently this was a regular occurrence. The shepherds, for whatever reason, uh, would, would, would run these women off until they'd finished taking care of their sheep, and then the, woman would eventually, the women would eventually be able to come back and get the water they needed for their flocks. Well, this happens, but Moses happens to be there. And he stands up, and he saved them. He watered their flock. So Moses stands up for these women. And you see Moses, again, his heart, his desire to take care of those who are being bullied, those who are being oppressed, siding uh, with those suffering injustice, Heart's in the right place. When they came to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come so, home so soon today? And they said, Why? Wow, you're back early. What, what happened? Well, they explain. They don't just say, A man delivered us. They say, An Egyptian. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds that even drew water for us and watered the flock. Why would they know he was an Egyptian? Well, maybe it was his accent. Maybe it was the way he talked. Maybe it was the way he was dressed. Maybe it was that he was clean-shaven. Remember when uh, Joseph was in prison, and uh, Pharaoh has his dreams. and calls for Joseph. What does Joseph do? The, the scriptures, and again, Hebrew narrative tends to be so sparse in detail that when detail is given, it's often significant. Moses, when he was called, it specifically says shaved before going to see Pharaoh. The Egyptians were clean-shaven. The Hebrews generally had beards. Maybe Moses was clean-shaven. So they well, he's an Egyptian. They identify him as an Egyptian, which sort of goes along with uh, what the man said in verse 14, you know, who made you a prince and a judge? You're an Egyptian. Well, the father, uh, in good, uh, good ancient Near Eastern hospitality, says, Well, then where is the man? Why didn't you invite him home? Well, they, they do. They call him that he may eat bread. And so Moses was content to dwell with the man there in the wilderness of Midian. Uh, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, a name which means simply bird. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he says, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershom itself, the name derives from a Hebrew verb meaning to drive away. 
but it's a pun. It sounds like the, the Hebrew word for sojourner or alien, a foreigner. Now, when we read that, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. I've always thought Midian. But it's ambiguous, isn't it? Which, which is the foreign land? Is it Midian? Maybe so. Maybe Moses sees his time in Midian as being an alien away. Or is it Egypt, where Moses grew up, where he was raised, and yet saw that as being an alien in a foreign land? But here we are. Moses is 40 years old, and Stephen tells us that before God calls him, which we'll read about, Lord willing, and in, in, uh, when we get to Exodus 3, Another 40 years pass by. You can, you can basically divide Moses' life into three segments of 40 years. 40 years growing up in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness of Midian, and then 40 years in which God used him to draw uh, Israel out of Egypt and then throw in the 40 years of wandering, with the, including the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. You know, And then Moses, uh, not giving away anything here, dies before they actually go into the promised land. Well, the second 40 years were these 40 years in the wilderness of Midian. Now, here we are. Moses, at the end of this time, is 80 years old. And he's delivered precisely one person from Egypt himself. They broke up a fight. He killed an Egyptian because he was beating up a Hebrew. He did help out the daughters of the priest of Midian. And he's brought himself out of Egypt. And you sort of get the sense, this is it? What was 1 through 10 all about? This amazing baby, you know? I mean, and all that training. He had basically, you know, an MBA in government administration there in Egypt. And he's putting that degree to good use, chasing sheep around the Midianite wilderness. This is it. What, What is God doing here? What's going on here? Well, he did manage to get married. He had a child. Actually, uh, Stephen mentions two. Only one is mentioned here. But the promise of his birth, the promise of deliverance, seems like a distant memory. Long time ago. Not much going on between him and Egypt now. Speaking of Egypt, what is going on with Egypt? Well, the passage doesn't just leave us with Moses. It has these remaining verses, 23 through 25. During those days Moses was away, the the Pharaoh died, the king of Egypt died, and a new new Pharaoh takes his place. And maybe the people, when Pharaoh dies, are hoping for a change of policy, hoping now that the new administration will do something different. Just as this, the, the past administration, when it came in, started this slavery, maybe a new Pharaoh will bring about an end to the slavery, and yet that doesn't happen. And the people of Israel groan because of their slavery. And then verse 23 tells us, and they cried out for help. They began to cry out to God. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not that he had forgotten it and now recalled it. Oh yeah, I did make them a promise, not that. But remembering in the sense that he is picking up those promises and determined now to begin to act on them. You ever had one of those coffee makers? Maybe you do. Maybe you used it this morning. Where, when it's when the coffee is running, if you can't wait until it finishes, you can pull the coffee pot out, and the little valve stops the flow of the coffee. And then when you put the pot back, it goes, 
because all that coffee's built up inside of it. Well, that's almost the sense you get here because God has been mentioned, but he, he doesn't seem to play any real active role in what's been going on. You, and, and it raises the question, where is God in all of this? What's going on here? And then finally, we come to verse 23 and 24 and 25, where God shows that, yes, he's aware of what's going on. Yes, he hears, sees the, the plight of his people. Yes, he hears the groaning. Yes, he remembers his covenant. And yes, he knows. And he is going to act. It's almost like that gives way, and now everything is about to start happening. He knew, it's interesting. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel literally, and God knew. Now, the ESV gets it just right there. They leave the ambiguity. God knew. God knew what? Well, he knew the suffering of his people. He knew what was going on with both them and with Moses. And he knows that it's time to act. The time has come, the fullness of time, to begin to bring his people out of their bondage. Well, that's all fine and good, but what about Moses? Had God just wasted 80 years trying to do something with Moses? might seem that way. All that promise, all that education, all that training, all that influence gone to waste now as he's out being a shepherd in the wilderness. Is that gone to waste? No. You see, by his exile in this humble place, Moses learned to identify with his people in a way he never could have in the courts of Pharaoh. You see, by his exile in a humble place, Moses herded sheep for 40 years, which as it turned out was excellent training for the job God had called him to do in the future, which was herding the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness. A wilderness he had come to know well. God wasn't wasting his time. He wasn't wasting Moses' time. might have seemed that way, but God was preparing Moses for the very task he had for him to do, preparing him for the reason he was born to this earth. He was maturing him into the man who would one day lead Israel out of Egypt. And above all, God wanted to teach Moses he couldn't do it alone. He tried to deliver his people and wound up having, wound up having to flee. He was safe in Midian, but all of his people were still suffering in Egypt God would use Moses to be sure, but Moses couldn't do this in his own strength. He couldn't do this alone. In fact, he couldn't do this at all. What's God doing in your life? You might think you know. Quite possible, even if you think you know, you really don't. God knows. Often, even when we think we know what's going on, it turns out, the way things go, that we really didn't have any idea what God had for us 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road. And sometimes it's easy to think, God, what is going on here? But God is patient, and he just teaches us to trust him, to wait on him, to realize that the things that happen, even the things that seem like setbacks or disappointments, are no accident, and God uses those and can use those to prepare you for what he wants you to do, and more importantly, to make you who he wants you to be. You see, the man who finally stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, was a very, very different man from that brash 40-year-old who went out to go check out the poor old Hebrews and killed an Egyptian man. Very different person. 
from the one who tried to take matters into his own hands. You see, what these events teach Moses, what they teach us is this. Our hope ultimately is not in any man, but in Christ. Our hope is not in a change of pharaohs. Our hope is not in a change of administration or a change of policy. Our hope is in the covenant promises of God. A God who remembers and sees and hears and knows. And oftentimes it's only when our false hopes fail that we cast ourselves on what is ultimately our one true hope, the grace of God in Christ. You see, Moses needed to learn that. Israel needed to learn that. We need to learn that. Long after Moses, another deliverer was born. He, too, escaped early threats on his life. Uh, he, too, uh, spent, year, spent time, 40 days, in the wilderness. Interestingly, 40 days fasting in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, before he began his public ministry. He, too, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, was made perfect through suffering. God spent 33 years preparing Jesus for the day when he would die on the cross and say to Satan, let my people go. You see, as one person put it, when everything is whittled down to the stump, all I have left is my Savior. All we have left is the promise of God. Not the strength of a man, not the administration, the policy of government, but the covenant promises of God in Christ Jesus. John Brown of Haddington, pastor, uh, had gone to see a parishioner of his who was sick. She's on her deathbed, actually. And Brown was trying to get from her some indication of her assurance of her salvation in Christ. Janet, he asked her, What would you say if, after all God has done for you, he let you drop into hell? Her reply was, even as he likes. If he does, though, he'll lose more than I will. See, she understood. If that were to happen, she might lose her soul. But God would have broken his word. He'll lose more than I will. Dear friends, our hope is in Christ for this life and for the life to come. The Lord Jesus, who said, everyone who looks to me will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, you've made promises that you will not go back on. You will not lose so much as to violate your own covenant with us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we stand on that. And Lord, ultimately, we stand only on that. Father, we thank you uh, for this passage. Thank you for what it teaches us about your patience in working in us and shaping us and molding us. Lord, even when we don't see what's going on, even when it may not make much sense to us, you see the big picture. And Father, we thank you for what this passage teaches us about our need of you, that you ultimately are our strong tower, our rock, our refuge. And Father, we trust in you. We stand on you. And we rest in you.
We pray it all in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.